Welcome to Free Thoughts from Libertarianism.org and the Cato Institute. I'm Aaron Ross Powell, editor of Libertarianism.org and a research fellow here at the Cato Institute. And I'm Trevor Burris, a research fellow at the Cato Institute Center for Constitutional Studies. Our guest today is Jim Powell, senior fellow at the Cato Institute and author of several books, including FDR's Folly, How Roosevelt and His New Deal Prolonged the Great Depression. The New Deal still seems pretty prominent today in the political narrative. We hear it referenced all the time. We talk about New Deal Democrats and these programs that were created during the New Deal that are often held up as exemplars of government working. Is this picture of the New Deal that that gets thrown around by politicians on both sides of the aisle say – we'll start by is it accurate? Do we, do we have the right picture of it today? Certainly not. <laughs> uh, the New Deal, of course, is the great model for peacetime big government. Prior to the New Deal, we saw government expand rapidly uh, primarily if not exclusively in wartime. Plus, all the principles here are progressives. So this is the great progressive dream, uh, throwing aside the constitution and establishing one new program after the other that becomes part of the legend. Uh, although I would have to say that if Roosevelt were only elected for uh, – through uh, 1940, uh, I think he would be remembered today as a failure. Even was it, was there a fair amount of opposition at the time of 1940 in terms of contemporary op opposition? There was more opposition uh, that, partic that particularly developed after his effort to pack the Supreme Court after the 1936 election, and um, but the uh, he he never figured out how to banish chronic high unemployment. That plagued them all the way up to 1940 when you really get into uh, mobilization for World War II and the conscription of more than 9 or 10 million young men. Well, that's, that, that turned out to be the way to deal with uh, – the way the New Deal dealt with uh, unemployment. But if you uh, – I, I, I think uh, as we remember, uh, President Obama was – ushered into office with the – behind the uh, New Deal dream. He was recalling uh, – 2008 and nine was recalling the glories of the New Deal. A heroic figure comes in when there's a terrible uh, depression on the landscape and he starts all these things and he defeats all the obstacles and everybody's happy in the end. Uh, as we know, Obama has had a few problems just with the economy and I don't think it's it's been a while since we've heard any references to that big success. It's really vanished. Before we get into the details of the, the actual New Deal so that we can see how the contemporary narrative might not be accurate, can you give us a picture of – so the New Deal was a reaction to things that were happening in the country. Um, so what what was the state of the country in the time leading up to the New Deal? Well, FDR is elected in 1932. He's sworn in on March 4th, 1933, which if you look at a chart of GNP uh, back during that period, uh, which the last time I looked at this was published in one of Paul Krugman's columns to prove another point. 
you you can't generalize to, you you can't be too specific of this because the figures were not th- that precise but this this chart of gdp shows that it reached the low point sometime not long before fdr is sworn in uh, that would be picking up the narrative here uh, a product of the free market policies of the Hoover administration, correct? Yes, but the point was that the bounce had already started when he came into power. But the the question being, the bounce coming back up, you're saying? Or- going back up, the recovery, the upswing of the information on the the direction of the economy had already started to go up. As I said, it's hard to be too precise about this, but if you look up uh, G- GNP figures. Uh, now we talk about GDP, but back then it was a gross national product. It started before, so that's that's very important timing because if he had stepped aside and not done all these things that interfered with the functioning of the economy, made it harder for businesses to function, more expensive to create jobs, all those things. If he had avoided all of that, and we can talk about some of those bizarre experiences. Uh, I, I think in all likelihood, the economy would have bounced back very powerfully without him. Is it accurate to say that Herbert Hoover had laissez-faire policies? That's always part of the narrative. The laissez-faire policies of Herbert Hoover then need to be rectified by FDR. We had the same narrative with Bush and Obama. Did was Herbert Hoover just a radical libertarian, hands-off guy? Well, he signed a big, a big, uh, massive tax increases in 1932. That followed the Smoot-Hawley tariff, 1930, which would increased average tariffs 59 percent on thousands of items and triggered retaliation uh, against the United States, which made everybody worse off. Uh, Hoover also signed the Norris LaGuardia Act that made it illegal for businesses to uh, insist on hiring people uh, only if they agreed not to join a union. In other words, freedom of association. And he was basically a big spender uh, in the Reconstruction Finance Corporation. It was doling out money left and right. He was trying to prop up the economy uh, basically a Keynesian idea. If he could prop up the economy and have people paying above market wages, they're going to spend the money and that's somehow going to help turn things around. So and that he, was exactly what FDR thought too, correct? I mean, about propping up the FDR economy via did a wages. Number of, FDR did a number of major policies that were actually started by Hoover. Mm. Yeah, so they were both big government guys. Don't forget that Hoover was in the Wilson administration. So if things were getting better – why did we get a new deal to begin with? Why why rush into all of these very large programs? Was it that they didn't they didn't know things were getting better at the time? It was too hard to they, see. They, it? they probably didn't know because because it's going to take you know if a year passes, it's like uh, we are at the present time. Everybody talks about global warming and we get hit enough by record low temperatures. After a while, it takes people a while to recognize. You know what we we don't seem to be having that anymore. The warming. So the and of course economics was a relatively new or inexact science at the time. So they maybe didn't have the indicators to act. Well, if a year had passed, if he had, if FDR had refrained from doing anything, uh, saying let's 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 uh, calm down and see what 
what really needs what what's the nature of the problem and what can we best do about it? No. But he he rushed in from one thing after the other. And if you look at the individual policies one by one, they are pretty bizarre. Well, let's talk about one of those. Um, one of my favorites uh, and one of Roosevelt's favorites. Uh, the National Industrial Recovery Act of 1933 signed in the first hundred days, um, and he was a very big believer. What was that, and what was the theory behind it? Well, it, it is well known at that time that we had suffered from a contraction, and the National Industrial Recovery Act clearly promoted more contraction. Whatever else was going on, because what it did was authorized the president by executive order to establish cartels and the cartel agreements that would determine how much sales is, is going to be permitted or allocated to each participant in an industry. What's the, they're basically break, determining market shares of hundreds of industries from dog food to draperies, to underwear, to machine parts, to stone crushers, any, anything that, that anybody who had a trade association was calling their, their uh, trade association lawyer to work with the federal government and establish a, a cartel agreement uh, allocating business and then FDR would sign all these things. Each of these things was activated with an executive order. And so the, the, the key thing is to determine how much uh, production is there going to be and the thought was to reduce production, to try to force up prices. That's what cartels try to do, limit production to, to create enough of a shortage to force up prices. They all wanted to keep prices back back up the way they were during the good times of the 1920s. But this, this gets to one of the, the aspects of the kind of current narrative we hear of the New Deal, which was it was you, you get the sense that people on the left see it as a clash between government trying to fix things and runaway capitalism, that the, the businesses that were being regulated by this fought against it tooth and nail. Um, and is that true? Were the businesses opposed to all of this? I mean, you, you're, if you're told you know, your production has to be this and you can have this amount of the market, wouldn't a business balk and say, no, I mean, I want to I compete and I want to take over more of the market? What's were they opposed to it? And if they weren't, why? They were prom pr promoting restrictions on competition. Uh, the only exception to that really wasn't an exception. The only exception to that was toward the end of the New Deal period in the late 1930s. Uh, Roosevelt authorized the filing of uh, antitrust lawsuits against some uh, 300 companies or company associations, including some like Mobile Oil that had been forced back in the days of the National Industrial Recovery Act to restrict their production and to have above market wages and raise their prices to, uh, to, to, to try to bring back uh, business the way it had been in the 20s. So the idea behind this was if we, if we can force industry to restrict production, that will increase prices, which will get more money. People will be paying more for things, which will get more money flowing, which will jumpstart the economy. Okay. Did, right. it, did it work? Uh, <laughs> let me tell you about the Agricultural Adjustment Act, which was exactly the same thing. Uh, farm prices are low. They're trying to prop up farm incomes and the only way they can figure out to do it is to restrict supply. So 
basically Henry Wallace, who is the Secretary of Agriculture, uh, pays farmers to plow under 10 million acres of crops and to slaughter and bury 6 million pigs to try to drive up all these supplies. But uh, one of the bizarre things is he's uh, – they were burning oats to create a shortage of oats. At the same time, we were importing oats. We were slaughtering the pigs at the same time that we're increasing imports of lard. We're burying corn and there's still a lot of corn being imported. And with all these efforts to help poor farmers, it, primarily it's the big farmers. Only 20 percent of American farmers got any assistance from any of these New Deal programs. Some of them spent very like the Farm Security Administration, spent almost no money. But uh, they – uh, it, it was the big farmers, the landholders who uh, who, who got the money and the, the people who were hurt the worst were black sharecroppers because the money went to people who owned land. If you own land, somebody else works on the land. Well, you're getting the benefit from the government in that program but what you're doing in exchange for the money you're getting is you're reducing your production. So you don't, you don't need that black sharecropper anymore. Let me try to – I'm trying to wrap my head around the the economic theory driving this, whether – you know, it, ultimately if it doesn't work, but there's still people thought it would and they had a theory for why and I'm trying to figure out what this was because when we talk about progress today, one of the things that you, know, you talk about like at a certain time, only so many homes could afford a television and then you know, now every home has multiple televisions or similar things like with refrigerators. You know, refrigerators were these massively expensive things and now everyone can have one and we look at you know, catalog, Sears catalogs from the 1970s. Every now and then someone will pass one of these around to the internet and you'll laugh at like how expensive these things that you know, these electronics used to be and how much cheaper they are and how much wildly better they are today. And so that's that kind of like things becoming more abundant and cheaper we hold up as a sign of progress for a civilization. But it sounds like the these these policies in the New Deal were saying the reason that the economy is in trouble is because certain things, food, is is too abundant and too cheap. And so the way to spark forward progress is to make food scarcer and more expensive? Well, or yes. am I being unfair? <laughs> well, uh, the New Deal consisted of a lot of things where people were desperately trying to do something and basically what they always did was grab, grab the cliché. Rich people have money. Let's tax rich people and so on. Um, the uh, back back in the 30s, only about 25 percent of the population were farmers, and their folk. The New Deal was focusing on trying to raise farm incomes. So, to the degree it was successful, it's increasing the cost of living for the three quarters of Americans who were not farmers. So they they create a problem there. Also, the National Industrial Recovery Act, while the farmers were trying to figure out what to do about the farmers, the National Industrial Recovery Act was busy making manufactured goods more expensive and farmers were needed farm equipment and various farm tools, all of which they had to pay more for than they did before thanks to okay the cartels. But it's because they're earning more from their food. So. 
Everything yeah, well, works you're out. trying to keep, you know, the, how how do they ever keep straight with uh, all all these transfers? Everything's a transfer. It's always a question. Of, well, we'll we'll help them. Over, we'll focus on this one problem. We'll give money over there, and then later we be somebody's complaining on the other side, so they have to address that, and they're going to create more problems. I'm trying to figure out how these prices were decided. These codes of fair competition, um, these NIRA codes. Um, which were called codes of fair competition. Who decided them? Who wrote them? Well, um, and didn't weren't we all about antitrust in the you know trust busting days of the first President Roosevelt and that well, antitrust would, is bad, you know trusts are bad and cartels are bad, and then all of a sudden we're making cartels out of huge areas of the American economy. That's what that's what FDR did most of the time. He worked. He created cartels. Uh, if you take some of the smaller agencies like the. Uh, the Federal Communications Commission that was giving away licenses and franchise, you know, franchises to relatively small number of larger broadcasters and, and retaining the right to interfere with speech. You have the Civil Aeronautics Board that uh, provided licenses for interstate airlines. And between the time the uh, the interstate the the uh, Civil Aeronautics Board was established in 1938, I think, for 40 years until it was abolished in 1978, it did not issue a single new license for an interstate air carrier in 40 years, not one license. And they said, well, unless there's some compelling reason to license another airline, we don't think we need any more. That was their practice there. At the same period, this is late 1930s, FDR signed into law the Anti-Chain Store Act that was doing illegal discounts and you had the the Retail Price Maintenance Act. That was another – that's all against price cutting. No price cutting, no discounts. Um, This sounds really bizarre. It sounds like an invitation for businesses – to get involved with government, I mean, to a try to control the laws and become the business that writes the code and is, participates in the lawmaking and starts to create the kind of crony capitalism situation we have yeah, now. Yeah, there's so much of that. There's so much of that going back and forth. With it. everybody is picking everybody else's pocket, it's very hard to determine, uh, you know, how particular individuals or groups fare because they're they're gaining a thing over here and they're losing it over here. Every, everybody's in everybody else's pocket. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it's interesting too because in the – Aaron asked about the just, justifications. They did have this idea of destructive competition and it was some sort of competition that was too much. And, and I don't know. They could never really define it. Well, they were, all, was, they were all anti-competition. Yeah, to some extent. But they wanted some sort of managed competition between let's say tire producers in Ohio and so the the – Groups would get together. The businesses would get, would get together to write the tire code. Right. And of course it was written by Firestone and Goodyear and Goodrich and the little guy was completely harmed by the tire code. And that right. was part of the idea I think. I, I was never able to figure out whether they were just in the pockets of these corporations or just did not understand markets or hated them. I have no idea which one. But the Agricultural Act you mentioned, um, which was setting prices on what theory? Well, how do you decide what the price of an agricultural good should be? Well, they didn't have any theory. It was all uh, see see the way somebody else does it. As I said, they're looking at one issue at a time. If we 
the, the, the farmers are hungry. Let's get the farmers some money. And then they find out later it's more complicated than that. Let me, let me tell you about uh, gold, which involves that, – that'll get back to how do you set the price. If, if you, you look at what – one of the things that FDR was doing in the early days of his administration what had to do with gold. Well, you start with the Trading with the Enemy Act uh, that was passed under Wilson in 1917. The Trading with the Enemy Act uh, empowered the president to prohibit any transaction involving gold, silver or foreign exchange. And that was the supposed legal basis for what FDR did to restrict gold. Uh, after the what, what did he do? Well, after the, you had the uh, the presidential proclamation of I think it was March 6, 1933. So it was two days after he was sworn in. That extended the bank holiday, but it also prohibited banks from paying out any gold because at that time, if you had any silver do- any uh, gold double eagles or you know any gold coins. You would go into a, a Federal Reserve Bank and they were obligated to give you $20.67 per ounce. Okay. And he, he wanted to stop that. So the first thing he does, so again, supposedly based on Wilson's Trading with the Enemy Act uh, in the uh, executive the, – the presidential proclamation of March 1933 uh, prohibiting banks from paying out anything, the next thing that happens in April of 1933, he issues – his executive order 6012, which orders Americans to hand in all of their gold to the tri- to the banks and the treasury uh, by May 1st, 1933. So that's where he expropriates gold and there's $10,000 of fines if you're caught with gold after that. This sounds like something that someone – a villain in a bond movie and would do. Then there is FDR signs an amendment to the Agricultural Adjustment Act and the amendment to the uh, uh, Agricultural Adjustment Act empowers the president to set the price of gold. So did he do Which that? he famously does sometimes in his bedroom. With what, dice? An, an advisor would come in and they would talk. What, what, what should the price of gold be today? I'm trying to wrap my brain of why. I mean what was his theory? What would, what would FDR – Why do we end up with a series of moves that are supposed to have to do with the recovery but what does by he prohibiting, think? prohibiting Americans from holding gold and then he gets to set the prices? But what does he think this will do to the economy? He doesn't know but he's desperate and what, what he's basically doing throughout the 1930s is throwing different policies against the wall. They contradict each other as you pointed out. Sometimes he's bashing big business and he wants more competition. Most of the time he wants to suppress competition because it's kind of unruly. Uh, there's all these different things that conflict. It's a whole mishmash. And as uh, Henry Morgenthau's famous testimony in 1939 that we've tried everything and still they have depression level unemployment. It averaged 17 percent throughout the New Deal period from 1933 until 1940, which is when you get into war mobilization. I guess I'm, I'm a bit confused on a couple of issues about the gold thing. Um, the the first is if Americans are prohibited from owning gold, then what's the point of setting the prices of gold? Because if you can't own it, then you can't buy and sell it, right? Well, so in terms of central banks. Okay. Um, 
and then the the second is okay. So he he was restricting gold, but for for what purpose? Like, what was the theory behind how Americans owning gold and then being able to get twenty dollars or whatever it was per ounce for it? What was the theory of how that was contributing to the economic? Depression. I, I, I think what he was trying to do is inflate the currency as one way of reducing the impact of the depression. Well, that would do it. I mean, if you couldn't go get, yeah, go get money for gold, yes. Right. He's, he's trying to prevent private individuals from protecting their purchasing power okay. by increasing their holdings of gold. I mean, and that, in fact, is what Roosevelt ended up doing. But you end up there in, in a number of memoirs by brain trusters from the Roosevelt administration, from the first term of the Roosevelt administration. They're talking about these in, insane sessions in his bedroom where he talks about what, what should the price be today? And he says seven, you know, make it seven, seven dollars or whatever it is. And uh, I said, wow. I think it was Henry Morgenthau herself said, why seven? It's, it's lucky. It's a lucky number. I mean, it has nothing to do with market pricing. He's He's the most powerful person in the country and he can try it if he wants to try it. But he's, he is not – you know, he was never a, a – uh, anybody familiar with theory. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about, about him. What kind of person was FDR? What kind of – where was his background? What kind of temperament? What kind of attitude, well, ideology? He had served I believe as secretary of the Navy. I think assistant secretary of the Navy. Assistant secretary of the Navy in the Wilson administration. He was governor of New York as we know and uh, he is generally considered to have been a uh, playboy until he was diagnosed with polio which is I think around 1920 maybe, something it like that. It was 20, yeah. He spent a, and, a year uh, out of private life or and that's life. what that's what gave him humanity and, and so on but no, nobody uh, – you know, no, nobody considered him a, a, you know, a master theoretician, and that's that's not what they were doing through this period. It was a is a disorganized, uh, you know, uh, the the National Industrial Recovery Act was basically modeled after Italian fascism. Now, this is before this is a decade, of course, before Mussolini forms an alliance with Hitler and gets into the war, because fascism was very fashionable. During the 1920s, among American intellectuals, a number of uh, American progressives went to visit Mussolini in the early 20s, including Ida Tarbell, who wrote the muckraking biography of uh, of uh, John D. Rockefeller, and uh, uh, there I can't think there were a number of uh, Lincoln Steffens. There were a number of early 20th century progressives who went over there, and everything worked. And he was very charismatic. This came after the tumultuous. War. He was he, he order out of chaos. So he's a character. I, I remember Ida Tarbell's autobiography. She says he kissed my hand. I could feel the magic and how his people view him and so on. So the, you know, f- progressives went for him. Can you give a quick thumbnail definition of fascism? Because it's a word that gets used a lot today, but often means something like. Anyone whose Duty political head. views I really don't like is a fascist. Uh, but- fa- fascism, economic fascism basically means private ownership, government control. Unlike communists where the government owns everything, owns and controls. So that, is it kind of like car- cartels or something like that? So everyone privately owns it but the government controls everything and makes sure that these businesses yeah, are you're, better. These if, you're a, if you're a big businessman, you are following orders from – 
the government. You have been drawn in perhaps with funding, with contracts and if you become too important to the government, you are going to get a lot of scrutiny and you better make sure that you are uh, not uh, doing anything that could be misinterpreted by the government. Now, you mentioned earlier the court packing plan, um, which some of our listeners may have heard of before. But can you describe that was in 37. Can you describe a little bit what that was and what precipitated it? Well, several of uh, FDR's early uh, major pieces of legislation, including the National Industrial Recovery Act and the Agricultural Adjustment Act, and uh, a couple of others, were struck down by the Supreme Court uh, in the case of the. Uh, the uh, Agricultural Adjustment Act, it was uh, for um, uh, imposing a tax on food processors and giving the money to farmers. That's very much like recent cases we've had on zoning where property is seized under eminent domain by a community taken from one private individual, let's say, and, go and given immediately to a big hotel developer. Well, that was basically the same kind of thing, giving it to one Participant in the uh, in the you know the food business, giving it to somebody else as a, because it felt uh, uh, you know fulfilled some government policy they had, but the um, the court struck that down and it struck down the National Industrial Recovery Act in a, a case about some Jewish butchers too, which is right. pretty interesting by itself. The Schechter brothers, right, right, right. Well, the. Uh, you, you had a core of four – what were called the four horsemen of reaction, uh, which was uh, George Sutherland, um, James McReynolds, Willis Van uh, James McMahon, Willis Van Der Venter, James McReynolds and Pierce Butler, right? They were the core but sometimes there were uh, additional votes from the Chief Justice Charles Evans Hughes and from – what was his name? Orm Roberts. Owen, yeah. Owen Roberts. So uh, they were successful. In um, uh, to uh, 1935, 1936, and so FDR figured that the only thing he could do was to expand the court. And he did this after the 1936 election, so he he could conquer the world at that point because I mean he felt like he could conquer the world because he he won by such a huge margin in the 1936 election. And uh, so he he started to address his frustration with his. Uh, major pieces of legislation getting struck down. He he, he said the, uh, the the Supreme Court they're they're old men they're <laughs> so right away he starts to antagonize the court. But he said you know after seventy I think after seventy you 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 need somebody else on the court. So he he couldn't take him off the court because they already had life tenure. But he could increase the number of people on the court until he had a majority. Wasn't this a naked power grab? I mean, that sounds absolutely well. Appalling. That was that was uh, you know that he 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 went into political decline after that FDR because you you got a Repub the Republicans gained a lot of seats in the House in the late thirties and uh, things just didn't go. Plus, you had the the depression of nineteen thirty eight depression within a depression. The economy hadn't recovered in terms of unemployment from the. Great Depression and now you have a big setback uh, mainly uh, arising from uh, Fed blunders plus the National Labor Relations Act that suddenly made it much more expensive for employers to hire people. So that provided incentives to cut back hiring 
dramatically, especially in the mass production industries, automobiles, steel, coal, where you had large numbers of, of people and a lot of violence and so on. Um, so weren't, weren't there things like the Works Progress Administration that put people to work building highways and amphitheaters and wasn't that a, a good thing? Well, it certainly helped FDR get reelected because it meant the government had $5 billion to spend in the 12 months before the 1936 election. That was a lot of money. And uh, yeah, but you know, all, all these things, those there, – there's a very interesting fine line. How can you help people without screwing up the economy? Because the, there's a humanitarian desire and a political necessity. You have a lot of unemployment. How, how can you help people? Can you – can the government provide – is it possible to provide any assistance without uh, screwing things up? Because, because of all of those work – relief programs and there were – must have been a half dozen or a dozen. This, this was during peacetime. There were no war – hardly any army. There's no war – usually military is the biggest expense. So all these relief efforts with millions of people in them, raking leaves, building dams, all this public works, all this stuff, that's what led to the tripling of taxes during the Great Depression and ironically, the, one of the most ironic things I didn't realize till after I'd written uh, FDR's Folly, uh, you, you, you may know the uh, biggest tax. What was the biggest tax, biggest source of federal revenue during the New Deal period? Do you have any idea? Tariffs on alcohol maybe? I don't know. Well, tariffs are one, are one source. There are corporate income taxes. There are personal income taxes. There are – But those uh, weren't that high at that point, were they? The biggest source of federal revenue during the Great Depression were excise taxes. Oh, excise taxes. Excise taxes on beer, That's what I meant to wine, say, yes. cigarettes, chewing gum, soda, radios. In other words, cheap pleasures for millions and millions of people. They can't afford a nice car or a nice house or anything, but they can have some fun food sometime or they're smoking. So, that's excise taxes and the first thing FDR did when he came in was to start increasing excise taxes. He raised the the Beer Wine Act, the Liquor Revenue Act. You have two or three of those just in the first year. But until 1936, there was more federal revenue generated by the federal excise – by federal excise taxes. There wasn't just one tax. The federal excise taxes generated more revenue – until 1936 and the federal personal income tax and the federal corporate income tax combined and it's not until about 1942 that the federal personal income tax becomes the biggest revenue generator in the government. Until then, the biggest tax is, is the excise taxes. All these wonderful government programs are paid for by taxes that hit lower income people big time. You said that the, the best thing for FDR to have done would have been nothing because a recovery had already begun by the time he took office. I think that's but, probably true. But you, you know, but you, he didn't know that and people didn't not. know that. And so given that lack of knowledge, what would have been 
the right thing for him and his brain trust and the people of the federal government to do to turn the country around, to help those people who are out of work based on – I mean other situations where the country's had a depression and we've gotten out of it in a different way. Like what, what would have been better policies than what they tried? Well, I think first of all, the probably in that situation, I think the most important thing is is what he did very well. He gave these fireside chats and these speeches and he was able to establish a personal bond and the confidence in the people. So that's important. That's about the only thing you can do because you don't want to get mixed up in humanitarian policy that ends up forcing you to do things that are going to make the recovery more difficult. And I'm, I'm sure you know about uh, – the Depression of 1920 that Harding and Coolidge or Harding got us through and, and I, I think his philosophy was very wise because Harding believed that the most humane thing you can do in an economic crisis is to get people through it as fast as possible. So that means you're having severe adjustments. But you know, after World War One, when the war was over. There were military contracts were being uh, discontinued. Uh, companies that made a lot of money making war material, they were going to have to look to something else. And he was – he wanted the message – Harding wanted the message to be understood loud and clear that your future is in the civilian sector of the economy. We want you to have the strongest incentives to find a job. Your company's going to need a new line of business, new products to sell. They're having nothing to do with the war. We're done with that. And the faster you make the transition, the better. Well, there was a terrible interlude, but it was over in less than two years. The Roaring Twenties were underway by 1923. And I think so. In Hoover's, in Hoover Roosevelt's case, you know, the Smoot-Hawley tariff—that's one obvious thing to attack. Now, politically, that's very difficult because every interest group, there are thousands, literally thousands. I've, I've, I've still got a lot of the volumes of who of Smoot-Hawley testimony, and, and everybody is is testifying. So that's that would politically be very difficult. But if you could begin to phase them out, phase them out. Uh, there, there were a lot of these taxes, uh, especially uh, focus on taxes that make it more difficult and expensive to hire people. You want to make it as – what can the president do that would make it as easy and cheap as possible for businesses to start hiring people? Because what the normal course of development in a depression is that what happens is prices fall so much and they're going to keep falling – until they become irresistible bargains. There is a point when they become irresistible bargains and even in 1933 when there were 25 percent unemployment, there, that meant that 75 percent of the people were employed and getting a regular check. So it's not like there was no money in the country. It was just a severe setback. So you got 75 percent of the people who have money. They're going to start buying stuff and stocks and – you know whatever else they want to buy. So you want to in, – it's going to get down and you don't want to be in the way when when they start uh, you know, buying another house or uh, you know, more food or whatever it is that people want to buy or invest in. I've heard an argument that, that at the time, as we mentioned, uh, fascism was very popular. Socialism was very popular. The, I, you know, people had gone to the Soviet Union and – and seen the future, and seen, seen the that future. it works. Yes, yes. exactly. Um, so, 
perhaps – I mean I believe that what you said would have worked and would have gotten us out of the depression more quickly. But perhaps what was needed at the time was to save capitalism was the idea that government was doing something because something to help out the little people right. even though – because there really could have been a socialist revolution in the country. If you go read you know, read Grapes of Wrath and, and Steinbeck's views about this and what the right. people were doing. You had a Dust Bowl at the same time just you know, coincidentally uh, at the same time in Oklahoma, which is where my family's from. So I've heard about that for my whole life and even just the perception that FDR was helping people out was very important. So would you, would you say that was a good – He was also a new face. True. So that, that would buy, buy him a little bit of time. But it, it really was important for him to use what little time he had. And there's a transition to to get going in the right direction. And he didn't do that. That's why he was uh, – you know, what you continually find with these interventionist policies is that they're, they're, they're doing a favor over here and they're giving somebody else a kick back here. Uh, and and you just can't keep up with all the the un, unexpected consequences. You look at the uh, TVA, for example, the Tennessee you know, Valley Authority. The Tennessee Valley Authority. Yeah, that was a big that was a big thing. Uh, Roosevelt was very excited about it. He, he he got into it from Norris LaGuardia, who was a senator who believed in public power. Well, the TVA was set up as a monopoly. It drove the uh, – I forget what the company was, uh, but there was a power company that was serving the TVA, privately owned company. He drove it out of business. He established the, T the Tennessee Valley Authority as a monopoly within their area. They were not subject to federal laws or state laws. They were not subject to federal or state taxes. So this was supposed to be a great miracle. It's going to provide subsidized cheap electricity and bring a new world for these poor people in the Tennessee Valley. But you know what? It lost money. It depended on congressional appropriations every year to cover their losses. And but the people had power, right? I mean, wasn't that the well, whole idea? So. There, there was a study done 50 years after the TVA was established. First of all, the TVA didn't build very much. There were only six dams built before 1940 or up, up through 1940. Then you get into war mobilization and 80 percent of TVA power went for war-related stuff including enriching uranium for the uh, Manhattan Project. So that – you know, in World War II, you're not talking about the TVA helping poor people uh, because it's not supplying energy to poor people. Anyway, so – uh, it only did six dams. These are small dams because the gorges in the tennis in the Tennessee River, whatever river it is, uh, is it's very a bunch narrow. Of rivers, it's, yeah. it's not like it's not like Grand Coulee and the Hoover you know dam out out in the Pacific Northwest. Those are huge. These are small, and it to to build a dam you need skilled labor. So these are people making above average wages. This is not for people – this is not doing anything for people who are unskilled and, and they didn't do much of it because the more ambitious a public works project is, the longer it takes to get going. So most of what the TVA built by far was finished after the Great Depression is over. But the, the greatest irony comes – there's a study done 50 years after the, of the uh, TVA got started and it found that in the southern states – 
that did not have that did not get any of their energy from the TBA. The southern states, the southeastern states like uh, Virginia, North Carolina, Georgia, that didn't get any power from the TVA, that they grew a lot faster. They had a, a much greater growth in incomes and growth. And curiously, they had a much more rapid growth in the use of uh, – in electricity consumption and growth in the percentage of farmhouses that had running water. This is in the non-TVA. If you did not have cheap subsidized TVA electricity, you were growing faster. You were making more money. Interesting. Now, how does that happen? Well, the, the interpretation was that the TVA – well, first of all, the, the, the farmers needed a lot of things to make more money that did not use electricity like tractors. They use a diesel fuel. They needed more seeds. They needed a lot of things to, to raise their uh, you know, level of farming that did not have to do with plugging something in. And they didn't have as much electrical usage. They didn't have as many appliances because that's more directly – all the electricity usage is more directly related to incomes, not to the cost of electricity. So if you have higher incomes, you're probably going to buy a few more appliances regardless of whether your electricity is, is subsidized or not. So they needed all these other things. And, uh, and the same thing went with you're, you're going to have uh, running water in the house if you have the money to invest in the system. And it has nothing to do with whether if you just run an electrical cord out to a farmhouse, well, you can plug in a few light bulbs. There's probably not, not a great deal else that would be done in there, maybe a heater. But that's about it. So what are the what are the lessons? Well, I mean, overall, uh, from TVA, from NIRA, from AAA, what are the lessons we get from the New Deal? There is no such thing as a free lunch. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think what they're doing in in the Great Depression is they're and, and right through everything that Obama is doing now, they're looking for some they can force somebody else to pay for it. To, to will fix somebody's problem by forcing somebody else to do it. And then we, we find out, as they did during the 1930s, that you're causing another problem over here. You know, the TVA, as I said, the most incredible thing to when, when I was writing this chapter on this was to realize that they're subsidized. I mean, they're, it's not making money. If they don't pay any taxes, federal or state, they're not subject to any of these inconvenient regulations and so on, and they're losing money. And uh, only 2 percent of the American population was living in the Tennessee Valley. So 98 percent of the people were being taxed. 98 percent of the people, poor and wealthy, are being taxed to subsidize the 2 percent. And it's not even doing them as much. It's basically one of the things that happened with the TVA was apparently it gave people enough – these poor subsistence farmers – enough of an incentive to stay put. In the other states, they didn't have any incentives to stay put, so they moved – they migrated out of subsistence farming. They said, you know what? The problem is there are too many farmers, more farmers and more cultivated acreage than the market can – you know, than can be supported on it with a good income. And so you had a more rapid migration in, in these non-TVA states out of subsistence farming and into services and manufacturing and other things. And that's that's why they got higher incomes. And that's just another thing, another example of the unintended consequences of this kind of government intervention too, which is maybe kind of the lesson we can get from the Great Depression and the New Deal in general. 
Yeah, as I said, I, I, I think it, you're, you're, you're trying to figure out how can you get out of a crisis. You, you have to f- uh, be a political genius in order to pull this off. But you, you basically have to look for positive steps that don't create problems in your, in your wake. And that's what all these people have done. They, you know, Obama and so on, he's trying to do a favor over here and he's making it more difficult over here. And you leave such a trail of people who are paying somebody else's subsidies, whether it's entitlements or special deals, whatever it is. And you're, you're just going round and round on the same old problems. But you, you do have great political difficulty. These days we know nobody can uh, figure out what to do about the entitlements. Because you got 50, 60 million people who are on them and are not going to want you to touch them, so that's a that's a serious. That's one reason why you know uh, whatever you do, don't start a new government program because if you start it, especially if it's an entitlement, you will never get rid of it. Well, that gets to something I was actually curious about. I mean, so there were the New Deal was this massive cluster of all sorts of programs doing all sorts of things. Which ones of those are still around today? What's still plaguing us from this series of policies that was called the New Deal? Well, the biggest one, of course, would be Social Security because we had not Social Security but not just Social Security but you had Medicare added to it. Medicare is an amendment of the uh, Social Security Act. Medicaid is an amendment to the Medicare which is an amendment to the Social Security Act. Then Bush's uh, drug uh, program. Two. That's an amendment to that. It's like it's, it's like uh, like all the trade legislation today. I, I think this is still true. All the trade legislation is still an amendment of the Tariff Act of 1930. You know, they as as uh, Reagan said. You know, it's n- nothing has a government. You know, a eternal life like a government program. But when you're talking about huge amounts of money being spent now, a lot of the anti-competitive pro, uh, uh, laws that FDR did have gone by the boards. In the 1970s, a number like the Retail Price Maintenance Act, the Anti-Chain Store Act, you know, that most of your discounting laws were before 1980. They were gone. Remember E.J. Corvette in the 19th, which was an appliance retailer in Walmart. You know, they were back in the 1950s, they started to do discounting and discounting was tricky because it was illegal. And I, I remember I was uh, – in the 1970s, I was writing advertisements for several companies, direct mail advertisements for several companies that sold gold and silver to investors. And uh, we, we discovered in the, uh, the, the laws that survived from the New Deal, the anti-gold laws, that there was an exception if with coins that have numismatic value. If you had bullion, the only reason anybody has bullion – is, is as a hedge against inflation or where you expect to make money from it. But that's not a collecting thing. There's a numismatic so – so we, we had to use the you – know, you can – these are co- – collectors will buy these. You know, these are all bullion coins or one-ounce mm. coins. But we had to use that you language. You had to stamp and, something on them and, and have a say some you know, mono. Co- collectors and, like and – yeah. yeah. So uh, – but, but most of those anti – Competitive restrictions of one sort or another. The civil aeronautics export, as I have already mentioned, that was gone in 1978. Um, uh, so that's it. Was after then that you had Freddie Laker, and you had you had this, you know, uh, uh, three or four or five other major airlines from the late 70s that were starting all of a sudden. Uh, and you had uh, financial 
deregulation. You had Big Bang, which was about 1975, I think. Then during the 1990s, uh, Glass-Steagall was repealed. Now some people have blamed uh, you know, the absence of those regulations. The, 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 the irony is nobody really understood Glass-Steagall. Uh, you know, the best, the most familiar thing about Glass-Steagall was the prohibition on uh, having a single firm engage in both commercial banking and um, investment banking. And that was a New Deal law originally. And yeah, 1933 Glass-Steagall Act. And uh, so it was because of that that uh, uh, that that the uh, – uh, those functions were broken up. So JP, the most famous case, the ironically the most famous case was JP Morgan. JP Morgan and Company became a com- commercial bank and Morgan Stanley became the uh, investment bank. Now the, 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 the irony is that the uh, banks that did both functions were typically big city banks. They weren't failing. The banks that were failing were unit banks. Unit banking means you can only have one office and that that went back before I think the 1920s. But it was – unit banks started basically – it was small bankers who did not want a big city banker to be opening a branch in your town and competing with you, giving you a hard time because you're able to get more service from the big city guy. So So maybe we're – we got some – we got rid of some of these things. the Glass-Steagall. Ninety percent of the Civil, banks that failed were unit banks. Civil Aeronautics Board. We still got agricultural problems. Oh, yeah. We, we sure, still, and we still got Social Security. Roosevelt repeatedly stressed that those those farm subsidies because the, the Agricultural Adjustment Act got struck down and then he signed two or three more bills just like it. But they didn't have the tax in there, taxing the miller to subsidize the farmer. So there were several others and he stressed this is only for temporary relief. And we still have, and the other thing we still have, and it, we still have it. Yeah, we so. still, but we also still have the story, which which fits into the modern political narrative. Right, this New Deal story, which it seems like it always hangs around, that we have to remind people that this was not the way they thought it was. I think an important factor here is that Roosevelt is always, if because he went on to get elected twice more, especially 1940, he's he he won the war. If if he had not. Served, he had not been president during the war and been on the winning side, I think he would be viewed now as a failure because people, people are just going to look at the chart and they're saying, well, that was he, – he just couldn't figure out what to do about the Depression. And we had good times during the 20s and then bad times in the 30s. But he won the war and that, that, that covers everything at that point. He, he beat Hitler. Thank you for listening to Free Thoughts. If you have any questions or comments about today's show, you can find us on Twitter at Free Thoughts Pod. That's Free Thoughts P-O-D. Free Thoughts is a project of Libertarianism.org and the Cato Institute and is produced by Evan Banks. To learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.